have two Bible readings, and the first one is from Genesis 37, verse 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, <coughs> sorry everyone, uh, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Our next one is from Genesis 41, verse 1 to 40. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. 
The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dreams were given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Thanks, Felicity, for reading for us. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Brian. I have the great privilege of doing ministry here at St. Stephen's and particularly to our young adults. Uh, and as Liam was saying at the start of the service, this is a very familiar passage. I'm sure you might have done it in like kids church or youth group. You may have seen a movie or a musical about it. Um, this is a great passage. But I can find that um, one of the ways that we might miss what happens in God's word is sometimes we become familiar thinking we know what it says already. And so can I encourage you tonight to actually make sure that you keep your Bibles open for me at Genesis 37 as we look at this passage, because as I've looked at it this week, I've seen there is actually so many things that we can so easily skip over. Uh, so many great little signs of God's wisdom and greatness and sovereignty. And so keep your Bibles open as we come to God's word. Let's come humbly and prayerfully that we might hear him speak. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this great familiar story of your sovereignty and your grace. And we pray, Father, that you might help us now to come with fresh eyes to see your greatness and to worship you. Amen. Uh, well, friends, when I was four, I remember uh, one of my favorite shows on TV was this show called 
Mr. Squiggle. Now, quick show of hands, who knows about Mr. Squiggle? Okay, good, yeah, yeah, there's a few people who haven't watched it, that's all right, it's on YouTube, check it out. Um, Mr. Squiggle was a puppet who had a pencil for a nose, as you can see there, and the premise of the show was really simple. Kids would send in a few random squiggles to Mr. Squiggle, and he would turn it into a masterpiece. But here's the catch, he would do it upside down which meant that you had to wait until he was finished drawing and he turned it the right way up again, and then you could see what he'd actually done. Uh, of course, natural, curious four-year-old me, it meant that I watched the show standing on my head on the couch. I'm sure that would have been a thrill for my parents to see. Um, and it was a really fun time, but if you allow me the luxury of drawing a connection here, I want to say that life is sometimes like those original drawings that get sent in to Mr. Squiggle. There's a line here, shape over there, and a little bit of mess over in that corner. See, sometimes life can feel incredibly random. And if I were to ask you, when is it hardest to believe in a sovereign God? When is it hardest to believe that God is totally in control? I imagine that you wouldn't say to me, well, it's when I'm running late for an appointment, but then all of a sudden the lanes of traffic just split like the Red Sea and I managed to make it there on time. I imagine that you wouldn't say it's hard to believe in a sovereign God when you pray that everything would just go smoothly this week and it goes off without a hitch. No, it's hard to believe that God is sovereign in the mess of life. When a friend dies when innocent people suffer because of the actions of another, when a drunk driver plows someone off the road, or when the sickness won't get any better. It's hard to believe in the sovereignty of God when nothing is going smoothly, when there is setback after setback, and when everything that can go wrong does. And yet we've called this series Sovereign Grace because all throughout Genesis we've been seeing the sovereign grace of God at work in the life of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Despite setback after setback, we've seen that God is sovereign and he's able to achieve his good and gracious purposes even through sinful people. In fact, in Genesis so far, we've seen that God made this promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He said he was going to bring him into the promised land, that he would make him a great nation, and that through him, all nations would be blessed. But God's promises were not without their setbacks, were there? I mean, for example, when he comes into the land, the first thing that we hear is that there were Canaanites in the land. How are they going to come into the promised land if it's already occupied? And after that, we hear that Abraham was childless. How could he become a great nation that would bless all nations if he couldn't even have a child? But God graciously provided a son named Isaac. He graciously provided a wife for Isaac named Rebekah. And from Rebekah came two sons, Jacob and Esau. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been following Jacob and Esau. But now you'll notice in Genesis 37 verse 2, we enter this new phase in God's unveiling plan with these words of introduction. It says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. 
See, a common misconception about the end of the book of Genesis is that it's all about this guy, Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. But actually, what we're going to see in these final few chapters is that God's sovereign grace is present not only in Joseph's life, in fact, not only in the lives of Jacob's sons, God's sovereign grace is present in the lives of all nations. God's sovereign grace is fulfilled in that promise that God gave to Abraham that through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. Now, we already know a bit about Jacob's family, uh, but here's some things you might have missed. Genesis 35, verse 22, that you just get one verse on this, but um, we find out that Reuben committed incest by sleeping with his father's concubine. That would have made family dinners very awkward. Uh, We also read in Genesis 34 that Simeon and Levi ended up slaughtering an entire town in Shechem because of the way that they mistreated their sister. In other words, the start of Jacob's family line is an absolute mess. And what we're going to see today is that even in that mess, and in fact from that mess, God is going to draw an absolute masterpiece. We're going to see that when the innocent suffer, when there's setback after setback, God is still sovereign. We're going to see once again that God is able to fulfill his promises even despite human sinfulness which means that no matter what your life is like, you can entrust yourself to the God of sovereign grace. Firstly, when the innocent suffer. Uh, We begin Genesis 37 by being introduced to Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, who is now 17, and it's no secret that his father loves him more than any of his other sons. Uh, The crowning marker of his father's love is this ornate robe that is given to Joseph. And Joseph's brothers can see that Jacob is favoured by their father. And so we see that because of that, they hated their brother. But their hatred intensified even more when God gave Joseph a dream. Two dreams, in fact. In the first dream, God showed Joseph that he would rule over his brothers Despite being one of the youngest, God showed him that he would far surpass his brothers in greatness. And in the second dream, God showed Joseph that he would not only surpass his brothers in greatness, but even his father and mother as well. And we read in verse 11, the end result of this is that his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so now Joseph's brothers go out to tend their father's flocks near Shechem. And I hope that's ringing alarm bells for you because Shechem, I mentioned just a moment ago, was where they had slaughtered an entire town of people. It was not a good place for the brothers of Joseph uh, to be. In fact, it's no surprise that Jacob keeps his favorite son Joseph at home rather than sending him over to dangerous Shechem. But a little time passes, and now Jacob's worried about his other sons, and so he decides to send Joseph to check on their welfare. Now, you can only imagine the fear that young 17 Joseph would have felt, coming into the place where his brothers had slaughtered many. 
I don't think I'd want to do it. But we read in verse 14 that Joseph obeyed his father and he travelled from Hebron to Shechem. Uh, We know that that journey is about 80 kilometres. In other words, that's the same distance as here to Terrigal. And when he got there, his brothers were nowhere to be found. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Joseph, I probably would have thought, well, you know what? I've tracked it a fair way. I think it's time to get out of here. I'm going to go home. But a man spots him in a field and asks him, who are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. And it just so happens that the man overheard that his brothers were going north to Dothan, another 20 kilometers away. Now, you just got to imagine for a moment, if my parents sent me up to Terrigal to look for my brother, had no mobile phone, and a man came up to me and said, oh, I overheard that he was going to Wyong. Some people would call that fate. Some people would call that chance or luck. But if you're familiar with the God of the Bible, you would know that it's none of those things. The fact that this man is here and points Joseph on to Dothan is nothing short of divine providence. In fact, even as Joseph wandered for the last five days to find his brothers, God guided every single footstep that he took. God has him going exactly where he wants. So now Joseph is over 100 kilometres away from home, no doubt a little bit scared, but his father's asked him to do a job, and so he will obey, and he won't back down. And so he comes to Dothan, finds his brothers, and he approaches to check on them. And as he walks towards them, they begin plotting to kill him and dump his body in the bottom of a cistern. Friends, no greater dishonour could be shown to the brother who just walked over 100 kilometres to check on them. But we hear that they hated Joseph and they wanted him dead. All of them, of course, except for Reuben. Reuben was the eldest brother and we don't know why Reuben wanted to spare Joseph's life. Uh, It could have been that unlike Levi and Simeon, he was uncomfortable with the idea of murder That's possible. Uh, It could have also been that as the eldest brother, he felt the responsibility to take care of all his brothers. Or it could have been that after the whole incest incident, he didn't want to disappoint his dad again. I'm not sure which of these motives it was. But either way, they follow Reuben's advice. They strip the robe from off their brother and they throw him into the bottom of a cistern. And they sit on top of the cistern, eating food, and laughing with one another as Joseph cries out for help. And then a caravan of traders goes by. Sorry, let me try that again. A caravan of traders just so happens to go by. Make of that what you will. So now Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, makes the suggestion, we're not going to gain everything, if we, anything if we just leave him to die here. Let's sell him and make a little profit. Returning home, they seal their deception with a goat and a cloak, just like Jacob deceived his father by slaughtering a goat and putting on his own brother's clothes. 
Now Joseph's brothers do the same to their father. Jump forward with me now to chapter 39. Don't worry, we'll come back to chapter 38 next week when we focus on Judah. But come with me now to chapter 39 with Joseph being sold as a slave to Potiphar, an Egyptian official. And here's a really surprising thing that we see all throughout chapter 39. We hear this repeated phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, because God was with Joseph, the Lord blessed not only Joseph, but Potiphar's house as well, because everything that Joseph did succeeded. And so Potiphar succeeded because Joseph was a faithful slave in his house. And if you know the story, you would know that, unfortunately, things start to fall apart because Potiphar's wife continues to make sexual advances towards Joseph. Day after day, she pleads with him to sleep with him. And Joseph doesn't give in. Finally, she grabs his cloak and once again, another deception is hatched. And again, Joseph plunges deeper into a prison cell. See, in these last two chapters of Genesis, we've seen that Joseph is nothing short of an example of what happens when the innocent person suffers. Whether he be following the commands of his father or his master, we see that Joseph always did what was right. And yet things always went from bad to worse. And yet God was still sovereign. See, as we continue Joseph's story, we then come now to setback after setback because after being sold by his brothers into slavery and after being falsely accused and thrown into prison, we now see that Joseph finally has a way to get out. In chapter 40, there are another two dreams. This time, one of them belonged to the chief baker and the other to the chief cupbearer, two people who served so close to Pharaoh. We don't know what they'd done to offend Pharaoh, but they just so happened to find their way into Joseph's prison. And Joseph just so happens to come across them looking sad because of some dreams that they'd had. And so Joseph tells them the meaning of those dreams with God's help. And he says to the cupbearer, mention me when you get out of here, that Pharaoh might hear my case and I might be freed from my prison cell. But at the end of chapter 40, we're left with these solemn words. Everything happened just as Joseph said it would, but the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Uh, Some people say that your 20s are some of the roughest years of your life. Uh, That may be the case, and... uh, yeah, I, um, as, as a young adult pastor, I know that in the challenges of your 20s, uh, God can do some incredible growth in your life. Uh, I don't know why the 20s are exactly hard. Maybe it's the change and the instability of relationships and work and life balance. Um, maybe it's having to establish yourself as an adult in an ever-changing world. Uh, whatever you think about your 20s, Joseph certainly had it rough. Remember what happened to him? Sold into slavery at 17, sent off to Egypt, falsely accused and imprisoned. And then when he had a chance to get out, he was forgotten. They were a rough 13 years for Joseph. 
And yet through all that, we see that God was with Joseph the whole time. That what was happening to him was exactly according to God's plan so that he might be in just the right place at just the right time. Because even when the innocent suffer and we face setback after setback, God is still sovereign. Those last 13 years must have felt like a bunch of messy squiggles on a page, like random pointless drawings. It must have seemed like God had forgotten him. But in chapter 41, we receive confirmation that this was never the case. Chapter 41, once again, we have two more dreams. The first dream, Pharaoh has is of seven cows, healthy, happy, fat cows. And then we have seven other cows, ugly and lean. And then the second dream, Pharaoh sees seven heads of grain, full and good, but after them come seven heads, withered and thin. And now the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And so he's called up to Pharaoh. And God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream. Read with me now from Genesis 41, verse 25. Joseph says, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And the reason that this was given to Pharaoh in true forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And as we finish chapter 41, Joseph's words come true. That dream which came in two forms, because it was firmly decided by God. But there was another dream that came in two forms earlier, wasn't there? Remember that dream that God gave Joseph in Genesis 37? That dream that he would far exceed his brothers in greatness, even his father and his mother also. For the last five chapters, that seemed impossible, right? That seemed as if that would never come to pass. But now we begin to see that even when the innocent suffer and there's setback after setback, God is still sovereign. In fact, a little later in Genesis, Joseph will reveal these words in Genesis 45. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. 
In fact, a bit later, we read that it was not just to save the lives of Joseph's brothers. Genesis 50, verse 20, we read that Joseph says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, friends, God shows, Genesis shows us the God of sovereign grace. Not only what God promised Joseph would come true, but also what God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12, that all nations will be blessed through you. The sovereign God placed Joseph exactly where he needed him to save countless lives. This is the masterpiece that God drew with Joseph's life so that we might know That even when the innocent suffer, and when we face setback after setback, God is still sovereign. And yet, Joseph's story is actually just like one small section in a much larger mosaic. Joseph's story is just one small story in the grand story of the Bible. In fact, after Joseph, would come another beloved son. He would not travel from Hebron to Dothan, but from heaven to earth. And despite doing no wrong, despite being completely innocent and obedient to his father, he would be brutally killed by his brothers. But even when the innocent suffer, and there's setback after setback, we see that God is still sovereign. Even at the cross of Christ, God was still in control, bringing about the salvation of many. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter talks about it like this. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. See, the whole of human history is actually just one great big mosaic that declares the sovereignty of God. What God promised Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through him, has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so we know that when the innocent suffer and we face setback after setback, God is still sovereign. Friends, I don't say this to be glib or trivial about the real suffering and real setbacks that you experience in life. 
Don't think for a moment that I think that life is easy. But what I've seen in God's word and what I've seen in God's world is that he is the God of sovereign grace. And so you can trust his sovereign grace. Whether life is incredibly difficult for you right now or whether things are easy. Uh, Whether it feels like God is near or God is far. You can trust the God of sovereign grace. He is forever worthy of your trust, forever worthy of your worship. And so I'm going to invite the band up now. And as they come up, I'm going to read these words for us from Revelation 5. It says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.